Test. All right. Now we're cooking. <coughs> As Dr. David said earlier, the theme is loud. <laughs> The sound guys always get the evil look when something goes wrong, but they never get praise when everything goes right. So thank you guys for the work that you do in the back. The theme of this morning's service is rebellion and grace. And in Genesis chapter 10 and chapter 11 the author once again demonstrates the parallel themes that we see throughout Scripture. And those parallel themes that we see all throughout Scripture are human rebellion and God's grace. These twin themes touch every person's life from young to old. And as we listen and understand what this passage is teaching us about God, about ourselves and, and our place and our purpose in God's creation... There are two questions, the two questions that Dr. David referenced in the call to worship this morning that I think this passage really confronts each of us with. And the first one, so that you can write them down if you want, they'll be on the screen. The first one is, how has rebellion and grace been part of your life experience? How has rebellion and grace been part of your life experience? You know, for me, I, I was thinking about this very question, and there are too many examples to even number how rebellion and God's grace or rebellion and grace have been, uh, have been part of my life experience. But I, I'll just let you know of one. When I, was, um, when I was in high school, I used a particular situation that was going on in my life for a, uh, for a reason. Uh, or an excuse to rebel and to do what I wanted to do. Uh, my parents were getting a divorce, and I was upset, uh, and, and all of these different things were going on in the mind of a teenager. And so for me, I used this negative example, or this negative uh, thing that was going on in my life as an excuse for my own rebellion from God. And I began running and falling in with the wrong crowd and doing several things that I knew that I was convicted of that were wrong. I knew that as a believer, I should not be engaging in this particular activity or doing this particular thing or hanging with this particular crowd. And it was in the midst of all of that that my rebellion brought me to a very desperate place. And by the grace of God, one day, God gripped my heart and got my attention in the midst of my rebellion. And it was by God's grace toward me that I was repentant of my sin, that I returned to God, that I returned to following Him, that I repented of the rebellion that was, that was in my heart and in my life. God's grace 
was near to me, but I had to come to a point where I was, I was broken, where I was ready, that I was ready to stop running, that I was ready to be done with, with rebellion. And by God's grace, he brought me to that point and kept me safe in the midst of my rebellious journey. The second question that I want us to consider this morning as we look at this text is, have you experienced God's grace in the midst of your rebellion? Have you experienced God's grace in the midst of your rebellion? Well, the good news of Christ is that he does meet us in our rebellion, and he extends God's grace to us. This really is the good news of Jesus Christ. Because while we find ourselves in a place of rebellion, one of the great tokens of God's grace is that he does not remove himself so far that he becomes unapproachable. God remains involved in the lives of his people, but God also remains involved in, in his creation, in the world that he has created. And so what we see in Genesis 10 and 11, we see really <clears throat> in the whole narrative of Genesis 1 through 11. This whole narrative, it moves with kind of a, a rapid speed. We go from, from the dawning of creation to the establishment of nations. We do all of this in 11 chapters. So this morning, we're finishing up this sermon series in the beginning on Genesis 3 through 11. But as we look at this last narrative... We, we need to pause and remember the major events that have happened in Genesis 1 through 11. And the reason is because they're all connected. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2, they are enjoying God's presence. They are, <clears throat> they are working and serving in the midst of the garden. This is, we've noted that this is uh, priestly language, the words that are used for the work of priests later on uh, in the Old Testament. And so what Adam and Eve are doing in the midst of the garden is they're, they're serving God, they're enjoying His presence, they're enjoying the goodness and the, um, the, the fullness of God's good creation. But sin enters in Genesis chapter 3 and since sin's unwelcomed entrance into the world in Genesis 3... What we've been noting is the downward spiral of humanity, the downward spiral of, of culture and of morality. Death has now become the common experience of the human race. Self-will and violence plague humanity like a blanket of darkness. Cain's murder of his brother Abel was the first display of violence in Scripture in chapter 4 of Genesis, and it wreaked havoc on the family. Can you imagine the hurt that Eve must have felt when she lost both of her sons? One was murdered by the other and the other driven out of the camp and driven away to be a wanderer. Lamech, one of Cain's descendants, desecrated God's design for marriage, marrying two women, becoming the first polygamist, and then he boasted of unjustly murdering a man for injuring him a crime which hardly was deserving of murder. And last week we saw how God wiped out creation and spared only one righteous man as Pastor West preached. He spared Noah, Noah's family, through the flood. And after the flood, when Noah and his family exited the ark, God issued 
a blessing and a command, much like the one that he gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in the creation account. Genesis 9, 1, the blessing and command reads, And God blessed Noah and his son sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And he says it again in verse 7 of chapter 9. But even then, after the flood, after everything has been destroyed and one family has been brought through, even then we saw that rebellion was not far from man's heart. And in 9.21, Noah drinks of the vine and he becomes drunk. Ham, one of his sons, sins against him. And then God curses Ham, curses Canaan, Ham's son. Well, that leads us to the first scene I want us to look at this morning. And that is the scene in chapter 11, verse 1, the Tower of Babel, a common delusion. The Tower of Babel, a common delusion. I want you to follow along as I read from verse 1 through verse 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come let us make bricks, let us burn them thoroughly. And they, they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar, that's tar. Then they said, come, let us, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is, the only, this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language. So that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the earth, of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, chronologically, chapter 10 fits between verses 9 and 10 of chapter 11. So the the Babel narrative confronts the common delusion that plagues humanity. That common delusion plaguing humanity is that man is the master of his own destiny. But in fact, man is not the master of his own destiny. And though we make bold attempts to stake such a claim, Scripture gives us a clear picture that man in his rebellion will suffer God's displeasure and ultimately will suffer God's judgment. Though the judgment here is not as severe as the judgment that was Unleashed in Noah's day, humanity's sin through prideful rebellion does have consequences. And what we need to see this morning is that our sin and our prideful rebellion also has consequences. After the flood, we get the picture of of a nomadic people. They're unified with one language. They're speaking the same words. We see that in verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words, right? In verse 2, talks about how they're migrating from the east. Chapter 10 helps us to understand 
that they're experiencing God's blessing as they carry out God's command to be fruitful and multiply. They're filling the earth. But in verses 2 through 4, we have human rebellion that enters the picture. Human rebellion enters the picture. And the first thing that we notice in verse 2 is that they actually settled down somewhere. They settled in the plain of Shinar. Another name for the plain of Shinar is Babylon. This is where they settled. And it, it seems, at least as we read the story, the narrative, it seems that settling is in contradiction to God's command of filling the earth. And so there are several things that we need to, need to note, things that Moses is doing as he's writing this narrative. He's writing primeval history. We have to remember that he's not writing from Noah or from Noah's descendants' perspective. Instead, he's writing from an Israelite perspective, an Israelite point of view. And so he's confronting these erroneous, the erroneous worldview of the Mesopotamian way of, of viewing God or the Babylonian way of viewing God. And so this, this Babel narrative functions somewhat as an apologetic. One of the keys that, that we see in noticing this distinction is the the distinction or the key of uh, the uh, mud bricks. They, they say, come, let us, let us make mud bricks and let us burn them thoroughly. This is, this is a Babylonian or a Mesopotamian way of, of building things. <clears throat> and they build what's known as, as ziggurats. We'll look at that in a moment. And so in verse 3, we notice something else. In verse 3, we notice that he borrows the divine language of the creation account to speak of what the people of this city, of this dwelling, are saying. They say... Come, let us make bricks. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed. And so we understand that the purpose of the city and the tower were to prevent scattering. But it was also to make a name for themselves. This mirrors the attempt of Adam and Eve in, in Eden to grasp power apart from God. So the tower builders, the people in Babel, settling in the land of Shinar, they asserted their independence when they built a tower. And the tower was most likely known as a ziggurat. Here's a picture of a ziggurat for you to see. This, uh, if you you search Babel Tower, this is probably what you'll find on the Internet. But a ziggurat was generally some. Let's look at the next picture as well. This might be another way of viewing it, but uh, it's generally a stair-stepped structure like this that goes up into the heavens, and at the top is thought to be the the room or the place for deity to dwell, for the gods to dwell. And the thought is that that this ziggurat, this place, it, it's a, it's called the gate of the gods. The tower is here even described as one that reaches heaven, reaches the heavens. And so it's said to be the place where earth has touched heaven. And though we, we might think it to be a noble thing that they would want to build a tower in order to commune with God, the reality is in their independence, in their arrogance, they actually intended to displace God. They imagined that by their superior efforts, they could reach God on their own terms in in their way, the way that they wanted to. So they were clear about what drove them. Remember, they said, 
let us make a name for ourselves. You know, this links back to the previously mentioned Nephilim of Genesis chapter 6. They were men of renown, literally men of name. It was the Nephilim who were seeking to usurp God's authority. And in a very similar way, they were seeking to make a name for themselves. The tower builders were intent here on glorifying self rather than bringing glory to God. And so it seems really that not much has changed in the human condition. People still desire to make a name for themselves, don't they? Let me ask you a question. Where is the tallest building in the world? Dubai. Anybody know the name of the tallest building in the world? Yeah, the Burj Khalifa. Did you look at my sermon notes last night? Anybody know how tall it is? Twenty-two hundred thousand? Not quite. That's pretty tall. You're close, kind of. Two thousand seven hundred sixteen point five feet high. It's the tallest freestanding structure in the world. It's incredible, isn't it? I mean, it reaches up into the heavens, doesn't it? It's tall. It's impressive. I assure you that the people who, the the person who built, or the people who built, the architectural firm even that designed this, is very good at what they do. I would even say that this piece of architecture, this building, makes a significant statement. So much so that it, Dubai has made a name for themselves with this tower, the Burj Khalifa. Well, some things in the human condition just don't change. We're concerned with making a name for ourselves oftentimes. From politicians to preachers, from athletes to actors, and everyone in between, the glory of being known by others beckons at the door of the human heart. We think that if we can just make a name for ourselves and people will esteem us more important and we'll be successful. But the question is, at what cost? What will it cost us? Long hours at work, will it, will it cost us our family, our marriage? What are the things that we're willing to sacrifice in our rebellion against God, in our pursuit of our own way over God's way, in the pursuit of what we want to do rather than what God has called us to do? What are the things that we're willing to sacrifice in our rebellion? You see, the irony of their sin in the Babel account, it's really striking. Because while sin promises one thing, it delivers the opposite. And this is seen in the the contrast in in the last line of verse 4. They say, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And then the judgment that God brings on the people is seen in verse 8. He says, so the Lord dispersed them from over the face of all the earth. You find that your rebellion and pursuit of sin operates a similar way in your life? It promises happiness and fulfillment, but in the end, it leaves you miserable and discontent. You know, it's logical. 
that if God is sovereign and if he's good and if he's all-powerful and all-knowing, and he is all of those things, it's logical then that we in our pursuit of joy and contentment and happiness would want to follow God's ways and, and follow God's purpose in and through our lives. But therein lies the problem of our human condition. Because as free moral agents, we have the ability to choose between what's morally good and what's morally evil. And it's not that we objectively say that we want to do evil. Instead, what we want is autonomy. Instead, what we want is we want independence. We want to do what we want to do. And this is how we choose what's morally evil over what's morally good. Because what's morally good is to follow God. That's why the psalmist says, blessed is, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its season, and its leaf doesn't wither. Then he goes on and says, not so for the wicked. They're like chaff. It's blown away by the wind. Human rebellion always has that disastrous consequences. We see that in the Babel story, the narrative, and we also see that human rebellion is met by heaven's reversal. You know, the satire of the whole narrative peaks in verse 5. And in verse 5, we read God coming down to see the city and the tower built by the children of man. So God is personified here as coming and making a visit. <clears throat> God wouldn't use, though, the stair-stepped ziggurat that was built by man's hand. He shows up there to investigate. And the story's almost comical. It says that the tower reached into the sky where they assumed God dwelt. But this is Yahweh the infinitely transcendent and incomparably supreme God of creation. The one that Isaiah the prophet says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. You might say that their magnificent tower was so minuscule that the all-seeing, all-powerful, all-knowing God had to come down to see it. It's almost as if God had to stoop down on his hands and knees and put his face right by the earth to see the great tower. And so the claim that verse 6 paints God as being threatened by the accomplishments of the human race is a claim that's left wanting. That's not what's happening here at all. God isn't threatened by humanity. God's not threatened by biochemistry, by technology, by physics. God's not threatened by the statements of a guy like Stephen Hawking. God's not threatened by any human being. God is sovereign. And so, Instead, what God does, we see in verses 7 and 8, is that God graciously intervenes. God will not allow humanity to reach the pre-flood low point once again. And left unchecked, 
humanity would cast off their dependence on God for their own self-sufficiency and never turn to God. Their hearts would become impenetrable and irreconcilable. And this is the danger that the people of Babel were facing had God not confused their language. And hear me out, this is the danger that we all face when we choose to walk in rebellion against God. Heaven's reversal is seen in verse 9 in the word Babel. The name was called Babel because the Lord confused their language. The word confused in the Hebrew sounds like the word Babel. And of course, we know the word Babel means to speak in a way that's incoherent, that's not understanding. And that's not far off here from what God does for the people of Babel. He confuses their language. And so in verse 9, we see that they leave off from building the city and they're scattered. The story of Scripture tells us of another way that God has intervened in human history. In the way that God has intervened in human history, the New Testament points us to see the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus Christ that God has actually intervened in human history to give us a token of God's grace, to give us the grace of God so that we might have reconciliation with God, so that we might no longer be divided from Him in relationship to Him, but that we might now become unified with Him, have relationship with Him. And so we move to the second scene here, and the second scene is the table of nations and tokens of grace. And we're not going to take the time to read through chapter 10, though you can go back and read through it. I'm going to give you the, the cliff note versions of chapter 10. And so remembering that Moses writes from his perspective, not from the perspective of Noah, we come to really a threefold point that's laid out in chapter 10. And the first point that I want us to note in chapter 10 is that he lists 70 names or nations. Now, the number 70, it shows completeness. And this, is, this isn't just me giving you some number technical stuff, okay, n- n- technical data. This is, this is legitimate. The, the number 70 throughout the Old Testament, it refers to the number of completeness. And so what Moses is doing is he's, he's introducing us to the idea that we see in 11.1. The whole earth had one language in the same words. And so we get here in chapter 10. And he begins giving us the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then he lays out through the remainder of chapter 10 who these sons are, tracing out their genealogies. And mixed in with the names of the sons are the names of nations. And so the point that he's making here is that there are 70 nations that have come from Noah. And this is representative of the whole earth. Moses is speaking comprehensively about the entire earth and the origination of what became every nation. So we see at the close of chapter 10, verse 32, these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Okay, so if you haven't picked up on it yet, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, is the story of God confusing their language and spreading the peoples across the earth. Chapter 10 is kind of a a microscopic view of how these nations came to be. 
and where they landed in the midst of the earth. Now, the, the second point that we see in chapter 10, Moses' second point is to show the nations as traceable back to Noah, declaring the unity of the human race. He's showing that there's an interrelatedness of humanity and, and, and that they're one unified people. The human race and every nation derive their existence from God. And so this is reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, when God says, He created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And so the significance is that all people, all people are therefore responsible and ultimately accountable to God as Creator. And the third point, the third point that we see in chapter 10 is that because of sin, the one race, the human race, has become divided. They've become divided, we've become divided from fellowship with God and divided from one another into many nations. And we're divided by geography, by language, by ethnicity, and by culture. At three different points in chapter 10, this is what he says. Look at chapter 10, verse 5. Actually, we see verse 2, the sons of Japheth, and then he lists the sons of Japheth. And then in verse 5, from these, the coastland peoples, that's the sons of Japheth, spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. You see that? Then we see next in verse 6, the sons of Ham. And then they're listed, and we go all the way down into verse 20. And at verse 20, we see the end of the sons of Ham. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And then lastly, he highlights the genealogy of Shem. So verse 21 is Shem. Here are 22, the sons of Shem, and he goes on. And then we see in verse 31, these are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Now, one of the things that's happening in the midst of chapter 10 is chapter 10 gives us some clues that point us forward to what's going on in humanity, in the human race. And the two leading characters of of the genealogy in chapter 10 help to develop the point. The first is Nimrod. Nimrod might sound like an insult today, but it wasn't in biblical times, okay? Nimrod. In Nimrod chapter 10, verse 8, verses 8 through 12, gives us the story of Nimrod. Nimrod was the one, he was seen as the builder of the great city of Babel, verse 10. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, then Eric and Akkad and Kalneh and the land of Shinar. <clears throat> From that land, he went on into Assyria, and he built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and he goes on through verse 12. Now, the name Nimrod means we shall rebel. This gives us a clue to what's happening in the midst of this city as they're landing in the land of Shinar, or they're settling in the land of Shinar and building. And then... We see the second character who is of note is in chapter 10, verse 25. His name is Peleg, Peleg. And Peleg's name means division. And it's through things like this that, that Moses kind of shapes and, and, 
and, and directs the genealogy to point to this division of humanity and the rebellion of humanity. And the whole narrative really points us to two tokens of grace. I've already alluded to one, to the first, and it's seen here in chapter 10 more fully. God divides the human race into nations by confusing their language. And the token of grace here is that God remains involved in his creation. That's the token of grace, that God remains involved in his creation. And though the language has separated and, and placed a barrier between humanity, we've not been cut off from communicating with God. The consequences of our sin have not made God unapproachable. And this is the token of grace for you, for me. And we need to be reminded of this truth from Scripture that God remains involved in our lives and that God is approachable. This is a display of God's grace in the midst of our rebellion, that God remains approachable. That's good news. Because no matter where you are, if you're in the midst of rebellion, if you're struggling, you can know that God remains approachable. He is approachable. And to see the second token of grace, we need to fast forward to scene three. And in scene three, we see from Shem to Abraham, a hopeful future. From Shem to Abraham, a hopeful future. This is chapter 11, verses 10 through 26. Now, in chapter 11, verses 10 through 26, he gives us 10 generations between Shem and Abraham. And these 10 generations are significant because we saw earlier 10 generations uh, from, uh, from Adam to, or from Cain, rather, to, uh, to Noah. And so now we're going from Noah all the way to Abraham. And the remainder of the Old Testament is concerned with laying out God's covenant promise of redemption. This covenant promise of redemption would come through the lineage of Abraham. And so the hopeful future for the human race <clears throat> is seen through Abraham's descendants and as the narrative progresses, we see this through the remainder of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. So we may note earlier of the 70 names or 70 nations listed in chapter 10. And in chapter 11, verses 10 through 26, the lineage of Shem to Abraham bridges this primeval narrative and what begins the patriarchal narrative throughout the rest of Genesis. So Abram becomes Abraham, all right? And in Genesis tw- chapter 12, verse 2, you can turn there and look at it if you want. In Genesis 12, 2, God makes a covenant with Abraham, saying to him, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. You see, whereas the people of Babel were seeking to make their own name great, What God does for Abraham is he says, I'm going to make your name great. The theme of completeness, though, is reintroduced through the lineage of Abraham's offspring. All right, so get this. In in Genesis 46, 27, later on in Genesis' account, Genesis 46, 27, and the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were... 70. They were 70. Exodus 1 5. 
All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. So as we trace out the lineage and the descendants of Abraham, we see this picture of completeness come back. And the point is for us to see a picture of completeness for, for the blessing of the nations through Abraham's offspring. Now we can see the second token of God's grace. And the second token of God's grace is seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The minor prophet Zephaniah prophesied, saying in Zephaniah 3.9, For at that time I will change the people's speech to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Zephaniah was speaking of the great reversal of what happened at Babel when the Lord confused the language of the people. And in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, we have this great reversal which begins. And this great reversal happens when Peter stands and he proclaims the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, it says this, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at, the sound of the, and at this sound, the multitude came together. The sound was the sound of the Holy Spirit moving through and the people speaking. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia. And he goes on to list all of these different nations that are gathered with their own tongue. And guess what they're hearing? They're hearing the gospel proclaimed by one person, and each of them are understanding the gospel in their own tongue. This is a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. This is God's ultimate token of grace to his creation. That Jesus Christ would come and by his death pay for sin that divides humanity from God and that divides humanity from one another. <clears throat> and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the language barrier that day and the day of Pentecost was overcome. And the hope and the power of resurrection, the power of the gospel transcended ethnic barriers and it still does. As 2 Corinthians 5 reminds us that we are new creations in Christ. Anyone who comes to faith in Christ becomes a new creation. And it states that, we're, that not only are we new creations, but, but the hope of the resurrection and the power of gospel also transcends cultural barriers. Because all who are in Christ have now become part of God's kingdom. All who have repented of sin and trusted in Jesus Christ and believed in him are part of his heavenly kingdom. And so this is the hopeful future that the rest of Genesis narrative points us to see through Abraham. Kent Hughes in his commentary says, the message then and the message now is the same. We must leave Babel with its proud dreams and God-defying ways if there's to be any hope. We must abandon our Babylonian hearts Search for security in the city of man with its collective delusions. You know, the common delusion of humanity is that we can live independently of God, that we can live autonomous from God, and that we can make our name for ourselves. 
But the fact that we think we can make a name for ourselves is nothing more than a minuscule ziggurat. We in our own strength, in our own musings, can never earn God's blessing. And we can never earn God's favor. So we must quit seeking to make a name for ourselves and find our identity in Christ, one who has given us a new name. So the good news of Christ is that he meets us in our rebellion and he extends God's grace to us. We must repent of our rebellion believe upon Christ and experience the grace of God that makes us new creations. So I want to close by asking you the same questions we began with this morning in the worship service. How has rebellion and grace been part of your life experience? Have you ever experienced God's grace in the midst of your rebellion? And do you know that Jesus Christ is God's grace to us in the midst of our rebellion? I'm going to pray and close us. And this morning, I'm not sure how God may be leading you. But if there's something that you need to confess before the Lord, I want to encourage you to do that. There's a way that you've been rebelling and you need to confess that to God. I want to encourage you to do that. Or maybe for you this morning... Maybe for you, you, you've got questions about what it means to have a relationship with Christ, to know Christ, to experience grace in the midst of your rebellion. And if that describes you, at the end of service this morning, there'll be uh, one of us, two of us elders standing over here on the side by the cross, and we want to welcome you to come and to speak with us, and we want to answer any questions you might have about what it means to trust Christ, to know Christ, or what it means to have a relationship with Christ. So would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, forgive us, O Lord, for our rebellious Babel-type hearts. Draw us nearer to you so that we might experience your grace and help in our times of need, so that we might be mindful of being yoked together with you, Christ our Savior, and that we might walk in your blessing and your favor and your grace. Thank you, God, that you give us your grace through Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that you'd strengthen us each as we, as we walk in your ways. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?